0: Tonight, Vladimir Putin kills Alexei Navalny, the 47-year-old lawyer turned journalist and activist, and the great hope for a democratic future in Russia. The latest saber-rattling in a psychological campaign by Putin, that's coming up tonight on Narrative. A quick reminder as we get going here tonight, the content you're about to see is made possible by viewers like you, who support us at Patreon, YouTube, and Substack. Narrative needs you so we can keep exposing the enemies of democracy as we're doing on tonight's show. The news about Navalny's murder broke just as Vice President Kamala Harris was due to take the podium at the Munich Security Conference. Navalny's presumed widow, Yulia Navalnaya, was there as an honored guest. Despite the impossibly difficult position she found herself in, Navalnaya took to the podium, and had this to say,
1: I don't know, should we believe the terrible news we get? But if it is the truth, I would like Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends, I want
0: за то, что они сделали с нашей страной с
1: моей семьей и с моей мужем ответственность. И я хочу призвать все мировое сообщество с в этом зале. чтобы вместе и Come together the military and we should fight the regime series is it this and this regime and Vladimir Putin should bear personal responsibility for the that our country last years. Thank you.
0: Vladimir Putin has tried to kill him before. And it seems that this time Putin has succeeded in his obsession. The other obsession Vladimir Putin seems to have is about U.S. politics. For a political candidate running for re-election in his own presidential elections in Russia, it seems surprising that he has so much time to talk about American politics. Perhaps it's because Putin has a stake in the outcome of the American election. So much so that he may need a particular result in the November election to ensure his continued rule in Russia and cement his legacy. Just days after dedicating two hours to lambaste Joe Biden and support Donald Trump on Tucker Carlson's ex show, Putin now says he supports Joe Biden for the presidency. I don't believe it for a second and neither should you. Putin is clearly lying. Putin is interfering in US politics again. He's using disinformation and outright corruption, just like he did in 2016 and in 2020. And it's all being done in support of the same candidate, Donald J. Trump. Putin knows that if Trump is elected, he'd have free reign to attack NATO countries. Putin wants an America that increasingly resembles Russia, where civil liberties are controlled, elections are rigged, and Congress acts as a rubber stamp for the dictator's wishes. Consider the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson's obsession With killing the $95 billion Ukraine aid bill that also provides some aid to Israel and Taiwan. Absolutely nothing, not even an actual win on immigration reform, the number one priority on the GOP agenda, was enough to get Johnson's support for the aid package. There is very little doubt he is a Russian asset. It all happened so suddenly in the dead of night. The sleeping bear had been there all along, just waiting for this moment. And in a work from his slumber, seizing control of the House, Johnson's policy decisions cannot be reasonably explained as coherent GOP policy. But they do clearly mirror Vladimir Putin's and other nations who seek to undermine America. Since Trump, no American politician has been so effective at advancing Russia's interests than Mike Johnson. Withdrawing support from Ukraine is bad policy. It's bad for the economy as it stalls vital weapons production which is needed both in Ukraine and in our military. It means the brave Ukrainians who died resisting Putin will have perished in vain. And it gives Putin Ukraine. Plus it also brings us closer to a global confrontation involving China and Taiwan and Iran. A vote for the GOP is a vote for World War III. I know what you're thinking. Here he goes again with that Russian thing. But let's be honest. The Russia thing was a very real thing. Putin knows that it's all worth the effort if he can get Trump elected again. He'll neutralize his greatest foe, the United States of America. Just got distracted. Got a list of two weeks till the election.
2: What in the world would do that? What fan in the world
0: would do that? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. The go for it. smart bomb falling down a chimney, 2,500 missions a day, 100 days. One video of one bomb, Mr. Morse. The American people bought that war. War is show business. You want me to produce your war? Not a war. It's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. We need, you know, it's a pageant. It's a a pageant. It's a pageant. That's what it is. Countries of war. It's Mr. Marathon, your bird part. In the 1987 satire, Wag the Dog, Dustin Hoffman played a political spin doctor who manufactured a made-for-TV war to rescue the flagging political fortunes of an incumbent president accused of fondling a young Girl Scout, The fictional scheme worked to increase the public support of the film's president and turned around his political fortunes. Now, that's a domestic president creating a fake narrative. That's one thing. But what we're seeing here is Russia and her allies in the enemies of democracy, they're creating actual events in order to move the dial in the US presidency. It began even before the Tucker Carlson interview, Donald Trump. Out of the Blue suggested that if NATO members failed to pay and maintain their military spending above the NATO-recommended 2%, he would encourage Putin to attack those countries. Then came the astonishing delay in passing legislation that could have saved Ukraine, orchestrated by Johnson, and infuriating our European allies. And then came the murder of Navalny, just hours before the conference began. And with full knowledge that Navalny's wife would be the guest of honor there, It's important to remember that the GOP, which appears to be so entranced by Putin right now, may not necessarily be doing this on their own volition. Putin likely holds vicious compromise over many of the GOP men and women in Congress, and he wouldn't hesitate to use it. We're so lucky to have Rick Petrie join us tonight from the Council for Foreign Relations. This was timed, obviously, to be just before the Munich conference began. He must have had complete knowledge that his now presumed widow was going to be there. At least Putin must have known that. And uh, along with Kamala Harris, this was a message. This was not just an assassination. And along with the campaign that was leading up to this with Tucker Carlson, these are quite significant things that have happened in the last few weeks, all revolving around Russia. There's a prelude to the Munich conference. It certainly sends a saber-rattling kind of message to NATO. Uh, what are your thoughts about this massive turn of events and, and the timing of it in particular?
2: It's obviously horrific. Um, it's, uh, further proof that, uh, this is a very hard dictatorial regime. I think it's a regime that's been through several phases of hardening and we're now at the hardest level yet with, um, very little attempt at disguising it. They have taken the opportunity to murder someone who is probably the most effective opposition spokesperson and a revealer of Putin's nepotism and corruption in a generation. So it's sad for those Russians who care about democracy. I'm personally sad that there aren't more of those. The constituency that Navalny appealed to or the Constituency he attempted to rally in opposition to Putin, I think responded disappointingly. I don't think that there is as deep a constituency for liberal democracy in Russia as we've always hoped there would be. And it was a time when many of us were hopeful and thought that we might be entering a new era, not just in Russian political history, but in world history in the sense that Russia could be brought into the Western fold. And I think what we've all lived through in the succeeding decades is the disappointment of that dream. And it has left me with a pretty cynical view of this regime in Moscow, of course, but also what um, momentum or impetus there is for movement towards democracy. Some of what's been most shocking to me about the Russian people's response to news out of Ukraine is the extent to which even those who might uh give voice to some misgivings about putin have clearly been hardliners and hawks
0: on the the war in ukraine it's hard to tell internet, uh, who's really responsible for there not being a democracy movement there because sure. putin is so oppressive is there a democratic drive a more democratic drive under underneath the surface there there must be what happened when ronald reagan did bring down that wall potentially if it's the permission is there they will do it the trouble is that
2: as many writers on totalitarianism and authoritarianism have been teaching us, the weight of three and a half decades of incessant control of the media and stifling of the vocal opposition, rigging of elections, etc., eventually has its takes its toll. And what I'm afraid is that we're seeing that the Russian people, who certainly in '96 when I was there, were full of energy and enthusiasm for a democratic future. I just don't see that same enthusiasm now. And I think Navalny to some extent was crying into a void, which is maybe the most tragic thing about the way in which his life has ended up. I've seen snippets. I I have such difficulty watching the guy.
0: Yeah. It's frightening when you really dig into it. When you hear about his aspirations for what he wants to see going on in the future, they certainly don't include any form of a superpower called the United States of America maybe a power, but not a superpower. Um, and of course that's wishful thinking, but it's it is what they're aiming for, he and she and the enemies of democracy. That seems to be what they are trying to do. The antics of the last few days with Speaker Johnson, who he you know, has a lot of priorities he could choose from. To choose the Ukraine aid as the hill to die on is remarkable to me as a thing to and you think about the number of things he could fight about. Clearly he is Openly signaling his his connection to Putin, and and we know that it exists. We know that two of his previous funders, who funded him thirty seven thousand dollars in previous campaigns, are close to Putin, not seriously close to Putin, like his former chief of staff and he's and one of his former best friends. It's not hard to imagine a world where you've got not only Donald Trump telling the GOP House Speaker what to do, but also uh, Vladimir Putin, maybe through Donald Trump or through him ever also telling the House Speaker what to do. And that's a terrifying thought when you think about it.
2: It would pass with substantial GOP votes if it were brought to the floor, Mm. which is to say to me that Johnson is in defying that support from within his own party, he's making a, he's punctuating, or he's making, he's putting an exclamation point at the end of the demonstration that you say he's making of his support for Putin.
0: Yeah, yeah. He really uh, is. And this is why I'm very excited you came on tonight because I'm we here we are in the last maybe February, like nine months of the elections. And a lot can happen in those nine months. We certainly know that the election will really only get going in the last six months or so. We've seen what has happened in elections in the past. We've seen those October surprises where they, you talk about the start of Nixon's career as a president. What happened with the, what was the name of that affair? She was the uh, intermediary between the Vietnamese and the Chinese. And and basically Nixon used that as a way to get Johnson to make sure the end of the war came after Nixon was, el- was elected. Not
2: Oh it, it was Chiang Kai shek's
0: wife. Yes. I can't remember her name now. It just slips my mind. Madam something. Yeah I'll find it show while we chat. It's happened there. It certainly happened when Ronald Reagan and and Jimmy Carter were handing over because of the Iranian hostage crisis. We've had some pretty suspenseful October surprises involving some pretty major foreign powers. We're knowing the propensity for people like Rudy Giuliani to be involved in these things and Roger Stone to be involved in these things. And considering where the world is, is looking, where we've got wars in Gaza, you've got wars in Ukraine and potentially a war developing in, in Taiwan, these are all devastatingly difficult for us and also opportunities for any foreign player to throw a curveball in the elections. As you look at each of those situations, you look at at Ukraine and potentially Taiwan, and especially Israel, which you're so familiar with, a lot could happen there, right, that could really change the dynamic between now and the uh, November elections. Uh, I put nothing
2: past Trump, and I do believe he's the key player on the GOP side. It's obviously at the behest of Putin, but the question is whether the message is being passed through Trump, but nevertheless, all. I think Trump is the one around whom all of the other GOP players dance, perhaps to some extent out of fear, but mostly I think out of the realpolitik that, like it or not, Trump or his endorsement of of GOP candidates continues to be essential for their success and for their fundraising. And he really has them in a headlock. And he, for reasons that I think are obvious, does not want aid to Ukraine. And it is clearly a continuation of Trump's attitudes and actions towards Ukraine that go back to impeachment 2.0 or 1.0 and to the subtraction of a Ukraine aid as a platform in the Republican pla- as a plank in the Republican platform at the Republican National Convention in July of 2016. It's been a consistent theme all the way through. You can hang around that, all of Rudy Giuliani's activities and others in Ukraine, but Ukraine has been the bellwether for Trump and his fealty towards Putin. And he's still very desperate to deliver on that. And it's very dangerous for us as a country and for NATO as an alliance and for Western democracy.
0: Let's look at that one specifically then a little bit further. So say we don't send the aid to Ukraine and that Ukraine is ultimately lost in that situation. One would think to to the Russians, they've already lost I believe we are about to lose a town in in that they had previously been holding to the Russians in the military field today. If that's actually a reality of what's happening in the field, if if the, the lack of artillery that's arriving from from the United States is that slow that they're losing strongholds, and they say within six months they could be losing all their supply. Then we could be seeing in six months a situation where before the elections come around, that uh, Putin is now the new owner of Ukraine and, and looking elsewhere, looking towards Lithuania, Poland, Sweden, who knows where he's looking. Um, I'm not one to comment
2: about the stockpiles of artillery shells in Russia or in Ukraine and how close to the bottom of the barrel the Ukrainians are, but clearly at least the message from our administration and the message from the Ukrainians and other European leaders is that the situation is, if not desperate, then very serious. And it's a shame, a real shame on us that we're not contributing to the effort. I saw today that there, there is an agreement from Macron and I think Germany of a combined, I think 79 billion euros. I may have that number wrong, but it's large that they were, they're going to make an immediate allocation. Much of that money, I think, unless it has strings tied to it by the Europeans, some of that money may even come back to Lockheed and other people here. A significant amount of that money. Would be invested
0: in our economy. I I that's probably a good sign that the, these alliances have held throughout and are still holding.
2: I think so. The, the more realistic prospect, if Ukrainian war effort really is strangled by mainly our absence uh, in the donor mm. circle, mm. Um, the more realistic prospect is not an immediate collapse and Putin victory in six months or something, but a much more protracted and brutal grinding of war, mm. which is very tragic in, in terms of the human toll, but um, also very destabilizing as it goes on. It's very destabilizing all across Europe. And I, my, I think the way to finish this is to do it swiftly. And until very recently, I think the Ukrainians were building a very strong advantage. The other thing that would happen if the war were to become more strung out, protracted, is that the enormous troop losses that the Russians have suffered would gradually be resupplied, that they would rebuild the army. And we really cannot leave them the time to do that.
0: No, and they're also building a, as is the United States, a supply chain for weapons, which is, we don't necessarily want that to keep growing. Then there's Taiwan, which is hanging out there as a real possibility of a still a conflict there, whether it mm-hmm. involves actual US boots on the ground. I doubt that, but it certainly could be the same kind of scenario where there's a support structures and artillery and other stuff that might be applied there. Hopefully you would think that that situation does not seem to need to go to war, but I've often wondered, and maybe you can help me explain this to me. Why does this have to mean war? Why can't the Taiwanese um, and the Chinese come to a conclusion that maybe there is a way for them to live together? And why does America need to take and get, be so involved? And I know we've said we were committing to be on their side and defend them, the the realities of the situation might be very different today than they were when we made that agreement.
2: No, the the realities already are quite different and it is to some extent an anachronism. Hmm. Harking back to even the pre-Vietnam period, but certainly the Vietnam period in which the U.S. military effort in Vietnam was sold in part on the basis of a domino theory that if Vietnam fell, then it was all Chinese conspiracy all across Southeast Asia, and in that sense, China was an enemy. Until the Kissinger-driven Nixon opening to China, the period in which that line was drawn in the sand and we pledged to defend Taiwan, I think comes out of that period and we're
0: clearly not in that sort of a situation anymore. The times are very different. And then there's Israel, which I, of all the sort of October surprise kind of things that I can see happening. Israel is, and, and what's happening in Gaza is turning out to be one of the possibilities that could be quite likely because BB is in no rush here. And he's certainly the urgency around peace talks as they were happening, although they've, they've been scuttled now, but when they were happening, were, came from America. That's America's urgency. It's Biden's urgency to have talks resolve uh, that situation there. And that's a very, not a great place to be heading into an election. With a war that size and uh, involving those players, anything can happen during, uh, during an election where people want to have influence. it's very worrying.
2: I will take you up, I think, on the suggestion that Bibi is prolonging the hostilities and has no interest in peace talks, in part, or perhaps mostly, because it enables him to hold on to power, knowing that sort of on the, quote, Day after all of the opposition forces will coalesce against him, or that's the hope it would. Right. I think it's slightly different than that. He returned from the Oslo Accords, and there are candid video recordings of him speaking to family members apparently in somebody's apartment about how he outfoxed the U.S. and inserted all these weasel words, and he has no intention of returning any settlement to Palestinian Authority, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's, you can listen to what. Carter said about dealing with him, what Clinton said about dealing with him. He's been a royal payer in the ass, and ministers of his have said so overt is that this is in fact a form of ethnic cleansing and a retaking of Gaza to be integrated into Eretz Israel.
0: That does seem to be what they're trying to do there. At, at, at first they seem to have different uh, objectives. And it was interesting to hear that uh, Blinken told Bibi that Blinken was more concerned about the Israeli hostages than than Bibi was. That tells you a lot about the state of play on the ground there. So this is about as unsettled a world as you could possibly imagine to be heading into an election season. And on top of that, you've got one of the election, Donald Trump has affiliations for Russia that we've been proving up and down for the last, for the long, for the last eight years. You can't believe I'm saying it's eight years, but it's eight years. And then on top of that, you've now got a pretty effective machine that they've built around him which has been discrediting Joe Biden to a point where he can't seem to get above a certain level of of support yet. I'm sure he will by the time he gets closer to that. But this is not a comfortable chessboard.
2: No, it hasn't been a comfortable chessboard since about 2015, at least, as I reckon. it. And with the world as topsy-turvy as it is, in my view, the Sort of experience and level headedness of Joe Biden is more important than ever. It's inconceivable that we would return Trump to power to face all of these crises, particularly knowing what we now know about his attitude towards some of them. The statement he made 10 days ago about the apocryphal, I'm sure, story of some a European leader having stood up in a meeting with him and said, Sir, are you saying that if we don't pay what we owe, as if they actually owe anything in in the way that he portrayed it, that you won't defend us. And he said, if you're telling me that you haven't paid, then yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. In fact, I'll go further. It tells me that we've arrived at a place in our politics, which is unprecedented. And enough Americans who care about democracy need to put their backs into all of the sort of grinding work of supporting individual candidates. We need to take back the house we need to reelect joe biden it's just a must-have right? but it's it's I, i've been closely following and then closely involved in campaigns since i was about 16 uh, and this is by far the most uh, worrying
0: and important you know i'm of the belief and I, maybe you agree with this i don't know but i believe that there is a lot of coordination going on between what i call the enemies of democracy uh, this coalition of nation states and networks and institutes and interests, whatever you want to call them, that have basically decided they've had enough of democracy and are wanting to destroy it and America. And when I look at these, these hotspots around the world, it looks to me there is a lot of coordination and that all these things are happening to some extent in order to weaken the United States, that they're maybe each on their own have their own reason for being, but taken as a totality, what they really are trying to do is weaken our military, weaken our abilities to, to engage in, in solutions around the world and to provide leadership around the world and to, along with dividing us in the United States, but weaken us globally with all these distractions and all these complicated factors that they are fully aware that they are inflicting on us. Do you think that theory is true? Do you think that's what's going on? And if it is, what can be done about it?
2: It's, it's not unlike, the dynamic between the USSR and the US at the height of the Cold War. I don't think if by coordination, you mean that they're huddling somewhere <laughs> in a back room or there's channels buzzing and they're saying, I'm going to do this. So next week after that, why don't you do that? I don't think that, but it's, it's not necessary because they read each other's moves. They see the openings that somebody else has provided and within their own sphere of activity, they can then take a step. Mm. But it's clear clear that we're fighting a a sort of rising tide of um, rightist, populist, ethnic, nationalist, anti-democratic forces in in many places, including in Western countries.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's right. I I could keep talking to you for a long time. I know I only asked you to come in for for this amount of time. We can wrap up fairly soon. But what when you're looking at at the world right now, what are the things that what's the stories that are most impacting you today that you're thinking about, boy, things have changed? Is it the Donald Trump story? is it the is it the Fanie Willis story? Are there stories outside of this foreign realm that you're also thinking well, these are game changers
2: I'm these days primarily focused on domestic u s. politics and the way in which the landscape is being arranged for November. And I'm hoping that The drumbeat of news that has already been generated, but much more of which will be generated through these trials of Donald Trump, which I'm confident will happen. I see frequently on Twitter posts about people saying, you're a babe in the woods if you think he's ever going to come to trial, let alone go to prison. But I think there will be trials and there will be important revelations. And I'm hopeful that at the margins, I don't expect some wholesale reversion to mean of the sort of MAGA crowd, they're not all suddenly going to wake up in the morning and say, we've been wrong, my God, we've been wrong. But I hope that at the margins, enough sensible people who traditionally have voted GOP, because that's what their fathers and grandfathers did, that enough of them will finally say, you know what, I just can't. And that will be enough to swing the election together with all the other vote segments that we think we can count on in the Democratic Party. That's a very important development because we've got to begin the process of pushing this mega fanatic alternative facts, right-wing crowd back to the periphery of our politics or else we're going to be mired in the kind of situation that we're in today. It has
0: to be this election and this will be the end of it, what one would hope.
2: I would, I, I just jump in to say, I don't think that it's going to be, quote, the end of it. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a protracted struggle, but I, I said we have to, with this election, make a decisive turn and start to push them back to the periphery. All of their bent, the aspiring candidates, the sort of the junior varsity level guys who are coming up are imbued with this. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, it's going to be a task. It may take a decade or more to relegate them finally to the relatively insignificant status that they had until
0: Newt Gingrich. Even right now, we know that they are probably about 25%, 30% 25%, 30% of the population at at best. Incredibly anachronistic and infuriating institution called the Electoral College. And we've somehow managed to have them, I don't know how they've done it, but they've managed to commandeer the House speakership. And this is a, Dave Troy likes to call it about the tyranny of the minority. Uh, these powerful but crazy people have holding power simply because they've managed to take our democratic norms and our democratic rules and manipulate it for their own benefit.
2: We've had crazy politicians before. What we haven't had is an entire significant segment of the voting public who are acting like the people who followed Jim Jones into Jonestown and drank Kool-Aid. And a lot of that is driven by media. We're in a different media environment. There's different technology. The old media structures are breaking down. And we have really seen a tremendously successful indoctrinate of a significant part of the population and that is among other things going to take a while to reverse
0: also there's a lot of work ahead for all of us let's leave it there tonight rick petrie thank you so much for being here tonight great talking
2: um, to you as always
0: yeah i loved having you on the show and thank you for uh, agreeing to come on at late notice is there anything you'd like to talk about in promoting no i'm done you're done you're done, done. <laughs> you deserve it have a great weekend okay bye bye take care. Rick Petrie joining us on a Narrative tonight. I'm going to just quickly close off here by saying that we are so thankful to you for being here. And if you are a supporter of Narrative, we'd appreciate it. If you put some money behind your support, you could do that by signing up for subscriptions at Patreon or uh, Substack or on YouTube, trying all sorts of new technology out today. Some of it's working, some of it isn't, but we were live for the first time in a long time. So I appreciate you being here. Tonight's show obviously began very poignantly with Alexei Navalny's widow talking about her belief that Vladimir Putin should pay for her husband's death if it in fact turns out to be true. And we'd just like to say that this show is dedicated to Alexei Navalny as is the spirit of all our shows here on Narrative where we are uh, trying to defend democracy um, and freedom no matter where it is around the world. Um, Alexei Navalny was a hero, uh, a great man, who was able to turn uh, a YouTube channel into a movement and who has been able to uh, fundamentally change thinking in, in, in Russia. He'll be sorely missed amongst the opposition leaders. And We can only hope this is not the start of uh, even more assassinations of leaders by the Putin regime as he consolidates power. Certainly there's uh, no room for any of that. I thank you all for being patient with me as I've been off for the last a uh, few weeks uh, dealing with some personal family issues. Um, I am uh, working hard to make it back to normal, and we shall do that um, as we return next week at a regular time, Thursday night at 9 p.m. We'll see you again next time on Narrative. One day you'll tell the story
3: of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. a story of citizens who stood up to tyranny, and won. The people prevailed, and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. narrative where truth lives hello
2: no. No. so